You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. Um, good morning. Um, for those of you who I have not yet met, um, as Anna said, my name is Dan. Um, I've been coming here for well long, um, which is really evidence that if you stick around long enough, you know, Actually, I don't know what that is evidence of, but I've been sticking around for a while. Um, As I said, my name is Dan. I've got three children and part of the leadership team, so if you want to chat to someone about the stuff that Nathan said, you can chat to me. I've also got a wife who's over there with one of my children. Um, And that really, those those things determine my whole life at the moment, so we have no friends and we don't go out. That's basically all you need to know about me. Um, So I'd love to get to know you afterwards. So we're continuing this series, which is Recover, Reset, Rebuild, and we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah, and this, as Anna said, is the penultimate week. We're into week three of a four-week series, so you're probably thinking, we're most of the way through. But you would be wrong, because week one, while she spoke very well, Jill Rowe, she spoke really well about how if we want to confront our problems, we've got to name them, we've got to identify our problems. But not a massive contribution to the overall series, because she only took chapter one. So, you know... Next week, last week, Nath, chapter two, but again, spoke very well about how we've all got our different parts to play, um, and we need to be strategic about goals, and next week, um, Dave is going to finish up by um, kind of looking at the last chapter, chapter 13. So between the three of them, they're taking three chapters, which leaves us with ten to get through this morning, but we're up for it, aren't we? I can feel the enthusiasm. Um, In fact, we're going to bite off even a little bit more because the book of Nehemiah is not as it once was. It's come to us in a rather truncated form because the book of Ezra, um, the book of Nehemiah has really been chopped in half. The book of Ezra is the first bit of it. So it's Ezra Nehemiah and it was one book. So we're going to go through all of it and I'd like to invite Rebecca back up and if you could just read the book of Ezra, that would be great. I'm only kidding, of course. Um, but it's really important to stick these, these books back together because if you read the book of Nehemiah by itself, you might think, this is a book about some bloke who built a wall and he's really good at it, he's good at organising people. But if you read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah together, you realise it has absolutely nothing about, or, you know, it's nothing to do with building a wall, really. It's about these people coming back from exile and it's about how, how they're rediscovering their identity, how they're rebuilding their community and what it means to be Jewish. And before we get into that, I'm going to go back even further so we can just immerse ourselves in a little bit of the history. So I'm going to go back to um, this guy, Dave. Um, this guy kind of ruled at the kind of zenith, the height of the Israelite... Actually, that's not true, his son did, but this is like the semi-final, which is always more exciting than the final, because once you get to the final, you can only lose. But as King David ruled at a time when the kingdom was growing, and it was a great time to be an Israelite. So King David ruled about 3,000 years ago. Um, incidentally, he always reminds me of um, India. This is such an aside, I apologise, but you know, it's light-hearted fun. He always reminds me of Indiana Jones, because there's a bit in Indiana Jones... Um, I think it's Raiders of the Last Ark. I'm not entirely sure. But there's quite a famous scene that never was. Um, And there's a scene where Indiana and his beautiful accomplice are fleeing some people. And they arrive in this marketplace. And a guy jumps out at them. And he's got a big sword. And he's kind of waving it around. He's like, I'm going to kill you. And um, it was was planned that they were going to have this huge choreographed fight. 
and it was going to be you know one of the pivotal moments in the film. It was going to be you know really good, show Indiana's exploit was with the whip, all of that sort of stuff. But when it came to filming it, um, all of the crew and uh, actors they all had dysentery, so they couldn't they couldn't film this scene. So rather than doing this amazing choreographed scene. Indiana and his accomplice, they're running through, and this guy appears, and he's all dressed in black, and he's like, wow, 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 I've got this big sword, I'm gonna stick you with it. And Indiana kind of just looks at him, they're about 40 yards apart, and he just pulls out his gun, and he just shoots him, and he's like, oh, screw him, and he walks off, which kind of just breaks all of the gentleman codes of conflict, doesn't it? It's like, you won, but like, I'm sure there's like codes of honor that you've just ignored. And that is, in my mind, that's a bit like David. Because if you read the story of David and Goliath, you've probably missed this, but it says David ran forward to Goliath, and then he's basically chucking stones before Goliath has a chance to realize what's going on. And it says that, that Goliath had a hole in his head where the stone hit. Now, why would you not have a hole in your head? I tell my children this every day that they ride bikes, wear a helmet. So Goliath hasn't even got his helmet on yet, and David comes running up and lobs stones at him. So, it's the same thing. He broke the code of conflict, the code of honour. Anyway, I'll leave you with that. Um, let me just pray for us before we finish. Sorry, that's such, an <laughs> such an aside. Don't know why. I'll silence the next thing that comes into my head. Um, anyway, his son, um, Solomon, um, the wisest person who ever lived, according to King Solomon. Um, history, history and legacy would disagree. Um, Solomon, famous for building the temple, the really beautiful big temple, and then a slightly bigger and more beautiful and more impressive palace for himself. Um, the legacy of wisdom is that the kingdom of Israel was never the same again. Um, I found these photos of these people who, who came after and thought I'd share it with you. Um, this is essentially the result of Indy Ref 2 when it happens, and for exactly the same reasons, because... Um, Solomon, he takes all the money, he builds palaces down south, and all the northerns are going, hang on a minute, like, what's there for us? We don't want to be part of this anymore. So after Solomon dies, um, Rehoboam, who's one of um, Solomon's sons, and Jeroboam, who's one of his commanders, um, they split the kingdom. So you get ten, kingdom, ten tribes up north, they become Israel. The, the um, Sachem, Shechem, that's, that is how you pronounce it, just to, in case anyone is in disagreement, um, uh, is the capital. But then, like, 50 years later, there's this little guy, I can't remember his name, Iram or something like that. Probably not little, but he's got a little name. Um, he he um, creates um, Samaria, and Samaria becomes the capital, which I think is just... And Samaria is obviously where the Samaritans come from. So it all fits together. Anyway, so the Samaritans come from Israel, the capital of Israel, and um, Judah is obviously the two tribes in the south, and Jerusalem is the capital. So now we've got a split kingdom. But then the Assyrians come, and this is bad news, because the Assyrians steamroll down from the north. They take the whole of Israel. They come, they encircle Jerusalem, and they kind of besiege Jerusalem. And when they capture the Israelites, they basically pick them out and they send them around their empire. Because when you don't know where you belong, when you don't know your story, it's hard to galvanize, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to stand up against your oppressors. So that was this, this brilliant um, strategy of the Assyrians. But they surround Jerusalem and they don't quite take Jerusalem. And if you read the Hebrew version from the Bible, 
um, the, uh, the Jewish people were like, yeah, we held on, they didn't take Jerusalem. But if you read the Assyrian version, which is, I think, in a museum in the States somewhere, um, but it basically says, yeah, we, we got all of their towns, and then we let them stay in Jerusalem, but they had to pay loads of money to stay there. So they both kind of claim victory. But that's, that's what's happened. And then sometime later, um, just a short while later, the Babylonians come. And this guy is bad news. This is Nebuchadnezzar. And around 604, he starts kind of just like dipping his hand into the temple, just taking a few bits of gold, like a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But then in 586, he completely smashes Jerusalem down, destroys the walls, destroys the temple, and it's like the end. And now all of the, the Jewish people, the diaspora, they're, they're spread out across the empire. Jerusalem, Israel, decimated the Jews and the Hebrew, Hebrews are no more. It's the end of the story until um, the Persians come along because this is Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great, another interesting fact, not quite as long about or rambling as my David um, theories. Um, Cyrus the Great, it's not a theory, it's true. He's the only person in scripture who is kind of a foreigner and he's referred to as being anointed by God or used by God or the language is Messiah because Cyrus basically restores, he, he, he begins to restore Jerusalem. So under Cyrus's rule, um, they're allowed to go back to Jerusalem because he's got a very different foreign policy. It's like, hey, if you're groovy, if you let people you know, eat the food they want, worship the gods they want, they might hang around for a bit and pay tax. So that's Cyrus's foreign policy. And this is where we pick up our story. So the story, the, the question that the book of Ezra and Nehemiah really asks is, how do we recover, reset, rebuild? And this is, the this is the question, essentially, that this book is addressing. It's not about walls. It's what does it mean to be Jewish now? How do we rebuild this kingdom? What does it, where's our identity? And the story follows three protagonists. We've got Zerubbabel, which is one of the greatest names ever recorded. There's Ezra and there's Nehemiah. And they're all asking the same question. What does it mean to be Jewish? How do we restore our identity? Um, so Zerubbabel steps up, obviously, first of all. Like in the first year that, um, that Cyrus is, is uh, emperor and ruler of the Persian Empire and, and Jerusalem, he says to Zerubbabel, yeah, you can go. And he, I think he takes like 42,000 people back and he starts to be, rebuild the temple. Because what does it mean to be Jewish? You need the temple because obviously God needs somewhere to, to be. You, know, you have to give God a house. And, and God is central to, to the Jewish identity. Yahweh, this is Yahweh's house. So first thing, Zerubbabel builds the temple. And on the opening day, everyone's, or all the, all the, like, the younger guys are like, whoa, this is totally amazing, this beautiful temple, we've got it. And then the older generation are like, whoa, it's, it's not as good as the last one. But that's, so that's where they are, that's like second temple syndrome, which you can read a lot about. Um, and then up steps Nehemiah. Nehemiah comes in about 70 years later, I think, and uh, he starts... He starts work on the wall because you need a wall, right? You need security, and that's what the, the wall is there for. It's to give you security. It's some helpful parameters. This is ours. That's not. So he builds this great wall, um, and that's all groovy. And then we heard a little bit in our reading that on the day that they open the wall, I don't know, how, maybe in like a gate or somewhere. I don't know how you open a wall. Cut a ribbon? 
between a gate, maybe. Um, but on the day, everyone's like, whoa, we've got a wall, and they're celebrating, and they're like, crack open the wine. And Nehemiah says, not yet. Before we do that, um, Ezra's just got a few words he wants to share with you. So <laughs> Ezra steps up, and he's like, oh, right, guys, I'm just going to read um, the entire Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. So he, he reads this out. But this is the interesting thing that I really want to talk to you about, because Ezra is just this fascinating man who has left a legacy that we that we have today so the reason I I was telling you about the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians is because they took people and they spread them out around the empire and by the time of the Babylonians the um, the Hebrews and the Jewish community Israel was no more there was no identity there was no shared story there was no leadership So who are these people? But Ezra, he gathered their stories together and he wrote them down and he he pulled them together. But obviously, um, some of the stories they shared in common, some of the stories, because they've been going their separate ways for centuries now, they've grown apart and they look a bit different. But it was Ezra's job to basically stitch them back together and make them a cohesive story. Um, and there's this guy called Julian Wellhausen. He was German, yeah. And he read the Bible some time ago. He came up with a, a theory called the documentary, um, documentary hypothesis, um, which, has, which is broadly accepted. It's just, it's, it's just bigger and, and more complex than, than he originally um, kind of stipulated and, and provided evidence for. But he was reading his Bible, and like any good Christian, he knows that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Amen. And he was reading it, and he was thinking, God, this Moses is a complex character. Because one minute he's calling God Yahweh, then it's Elohim, and it's like, just make up your mind. And he seems to be changing, like he seems to know things that didn't happen until after he died. And, and all of this is out of order, and he seems to be, he, so if you think about the first two stories in the Old Testament, in Genesis, you've got the creation story number one, which is the six days and then the rest day. And that's like, God is this spirit, this unknown entity, something other. And then you get the creation story in the next chapter, two and three, and all of a sudden God's like, just like a mate. He's like this man. He's got arms and legs and he talks and he walks with people. So it's these completely different theological approaches to, to how we can explain God. Um, anyway, so, so Wellhausen developed this idea that actually these are different theologians. These are different voices and we can pull them together to make a co- coherent, cohesive story. And a good example of that Oh, sorry, I've skipped ahead, haven't I? I've lost your attention. Ooh, I don't know how to get back. Um, a good example of that, um, which I've probably shared before, I know I've shared before, so I apologise, but is um, Noah. Because if you read the book of Noah, it's full of repetition and contradiction, like full of it. If you, if you go home and read it today, you'll, you'll realise. And I can ask you how many of each animal went onto the ark, and there'll probably be a disagreement, because half of us grown up with Playmobil arcs and we know that it's two by two, two of every kind. And you'd be right, it says two of every clean animal and two of every unclean animal. It says that. But also just before that it says seven pairs of every clean animal and two of the unclean. So 
massive contradiction. And it's just these two traditions pulled together. So what Ezra was doing, he was doing this brilliant work. When all of these people came back from Jerusalem, all with their different stories and experiences, he was essentially saying, this is our story. We've gone different ways. We see things in different ways. We remember things in different ways. We have different language to talk about these things. But let's not forget that we serve one God. This is our story. We all belong to this. This is where we find our identity. And I, I do want to read just a couple of bits that, um, that, that we had written to us, um, read to us. Um, so it says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, scribe, writer, um, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law, and they realized how far they'd fallen from it. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and spend portion, and send portions um, of them to those who, whom, for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites still the people, saying, Be quiet, be quiet, it's all right, be calm. For this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is the best news. So they were, they were spread out. They were oppressed. They've been lost. They have no leaders. They have no identity. But under this story, they realized this is who we are. And it is a massive cause of celebration. This is what Ezra did. This is awesome. And, um, and they took it really seriously as well. They took their stuff seriously. Um, it says, uh, later on, it says, and they found it written in the law, which the Lord had com- um, commanded by Moses, that the people of Israel should live in booths during the festival of the seventh month. So the people went out and, brought, and uh, I think, brought you know, all the branches and stuff to make them and made the booths for themselves each on the roofs of their houses and in the courts and the courts of the house of God and in the square and the water gate and the square of the gates of Ephraim. And this is, I think it's just, uh, it's, it shows how seriously, seriously they took it, how they adopted their story again. And this is kind of a hardship. This is, so this is, um, these are sukkah. This is what you call the, the, the little huts. And it's during the festival of Sukkot, Again, the pronunciation, spot on, all right? Um, But they they did this, um, they do this um, during this festival to remember their time in the wilderness. And this is kind of the average size of their little huts or dwellings that they lived in during the wilderness. And so it's this, really it's this moment where they, they remember, you know, all that we've got, all that we've got now, we were on a journey. We've been through hardship, we've lived in the wilderness but we remember that our journey is with God and God is with us. And so they're, they, they're fully, um, they, they fully adopt their tradition and they, they want to live in that because that's their identity. But before um, I, I leave you, really, there's, there's a question I want to ask you as well. And that is, um, what do you think would have happened if, they had, if Ezra and Nehemiah changed it round a bit? So rather than building the wall, getting security, and then, um, and then Ezra reading the law, what happened if Ezra read the law first and then they thought about their building plans? I imagine that's a question no one has ever asked before. <laughs> but um, 
Zechariah was a prophet who was kind of writing and working at around the same time. And here is a brilliant piece of satire, which would appear now on Have I Got News For You, had, it, had these been um, uh, current. Zechariah wrote this. He said, I looked up and I saw a man with a measuring line in his hand. That man is Nehemiah. Then I asked, where are you going? And he answered me, you know, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. Good job. Then the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited like villages without walls because of the multitude of people and animals in it, for I will be the wall of fire around it, says the Lord, and I will be the glory within it. This is just a brilliant piece of satire, isn't it? Because there is Zerubbabel, and there is Nehemiah building their temple building their wall. Like, if you think about what Nehemiah is doing, and I know that walls were important, they're kind of frontline um, defense, it's geopolitical, all those things. But if you think about what he's doing, he's measuring the parameters of this is the kingdom of God and we should have it this big. And, and Zerubbabel's just like, man, you've got the wrong idea. The kingdom of God can't be measured within cubits or whatever they use then, meters. Like, if you're looking for defense... God is your defense, and God doesn't need a temple. God, doesn't, like, God is the glory in it, and God is living in us. Like, what the hairy hair? You know, it, it just, it's this brilliant piece where it lifts us from, from how we get stuck down in our mission and what we think is right, whereas actually we've got to lift our eyes up and realize that God is bigger, God is more gracious. There's this other bit in, um, in uh, Nehemiah where it says that, that they were building the wall and then they've got, like, they've got some mates next to them with bows and swords because they were having to defend them. But as we've just seen, if you remember, the temple had been standing for 70 years before they built the walls. So why all of a sudden are people attacking them? It's because if someone builds a wall and says, yeah, this is just... So it actually says, they came up and were like, why are you building a wall? And they're like, oh, yeah, because, you know, this is Jerusalem. This is our bit and you're not allowed in it. Well, that's a really good way to piss people off and make enemies. So they've got it wrong. They, what Ezra realized is that the story can incorporate, indeed must incorporate, everyone. So, so rather than taking the story and saying, mm, this is right, and I, I've prayed about it, and this is the verse we should use, he changed up the story to incorporate everyone's experience of it. The story includes everyone. That's the story. God is the glory. God is, is our protector. That's what we have to depend on. And now, now that we are at this, this moment in time, I think, um, as we were talking about yesterday, as we were discussing, what does it look like to be church again? As we've just come out of this pandemic and everything is thrown up in the air, what does it mean to be a church? What does it mean to be a church in this community? What are our insecurities? What are the things that we should be focused on strategically? The answer is... Let's make this our strategic priority. Let's make this story our bedrock. This is our identity and our foundation. And as we begin to live this out, everything else follows. If we learn to live as, as Christ lived, as God's law dictates, we live generously. That's when we figure out what we need to be doing. That's how we figure out what walls we need to be building and what walls we need to be pulling down. That's what we need to be doing now, I think.
And I think that that is an exercise that we should be doing as the church as a collective, but also that's what we should be doing individually. I, speaking for me personally, I've found you know, lockdown, pandemic, all this stuff incredibly hard. It throws up so much, so many insecurities. But as we rebuild and reset, what are we rebuilding? What's going to be different? What's going to stand us in good stead? Where's our security? So I have these, these questions for you. Um, some of them may be helpful, some may not. Um, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, leave the, I'll read them to you, leave them up for a minute, and you can ponder them. Um, but I really do challenge you to, um, to take this story, to reflect on it, and think, is this story your foundation? Or are you running around building walls, building a temple? Because if you build a temple, you've got it right. Or actually, should we, be, should we be digging down into this story? So, Ezra reminded the Israelites of their covenant with God. God who is love. And are there times that we struggle to live under this ultimate truth? And when and why does that happen? That's the ultimate truth. Do we live in it? And, and of course, the answer is not always. No one does. But, but if we can identify when and why, perhaps we can make it our reality more often. And then what actions can we take or habits can we develop to keep us grounded in that story? That God is love. And here's, um, here's a thing. I occasionally, I, I was trying to learn about meditation and, and, kind of, and, and different approaches to prayer. And sometimes I get really confused about God because you've got to understand God. You've got to use the right noun. You've got to, write, you know, you, it's, you've got to write, use the right language and approach God in the right way. You don't want to mess, mess with them or annoy them. So, so and you've got to understand the Bible and it's really hard because it's trapped in history and there's so much study. But here is a profound truth. That if you close your eyes for a moment, and all of a sudden, everything else, apart from my voice, I'm sorry, leaves you. So you're aware of nothing else. So all of your stresses at work, all of your stresses at home, all of your anxieties, all of the things that you hope for, just let them, they're gone. They're gone for a moment. You, in that quiet, in that still, in that darkness, you exist in the reality of God. The reality of God, which is greater than what scripture says, it's greater than any language we can attribute to God, any name that we can give God, any way that we can sing about God, any arts that we can employ to articulate God. God is beyond that. But when we put all of those things aside, you can almost focus on the fact that there is a reality of God beyond our experience and what we know of God is that God is love God is creator and you can find time in your day or whatever to just acknowledge that can't you that is hugely profound it goes beyond language and then there's this question how does standing in that knowledge the knowledge that there is an awesome reality of a loving God and the knowledge that we are part of this great tradition that's been going on for years. 
How does that change the way you see yourself and others? Because it's not just a story, it is the story. It's the story that everyone is part of. And though we only see it in parts, in partially, it is the story. So how does that change the way you see yourself? And what behavior should follow? So there we go, that's my challenge to you this morning. To learn from Ezra, who, who, who realised the story of God working with the Jewish people was bigger than any one articulation of it. It includes all people. And it should. It encompasses and infiltrates every part of our lives. So let me pray for you, and then I'm going to hand over to Anna, the band. Anna? Anyone? Um, it's open mic. Okay, let me pray for you, and... Still not entirely sure what's happening. Um, God, I thank you for this story. Um, this story of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, as, uh, well, th- these writings. These writings that record what must have been an incredible... Which was an incredibly hard period to live through. A period of uncertainty. But a period that we can look back on and learn from. When the people of Israel ask the question, what does it mean to be followers of Yahweh? How can we do this? How can we be true to our story and true to God? My prayer for all of us, myself, is that we would be people who can dig down into that story and make it our bedrock. That we would be people who want to live and experience this. That we would embrace the hardships we would embrace the stories of remembrance because this is a story of hope and it's, a, and it's a journey that we are on. So God, I thank you for each one of these people here this morning and my prayer for each one is that they would know a little bit more this morning, a little bit more this evening than they do now, that you are a God who loves them and that is the ultimate reality. And that's the reality in which we find our identity.